Welcome to Totally Unrelated, a place for history, trivia, media, brain farts, and the occasional venting session. My name is Diana. And I am Irina. And this episode is brought to you by my powers of nagging. <laughs> um, indeed. So, Diana bugged me for a while to get off my ass and write about this wonderful book called The Gene by Siddhartha Mukherjee. Hopefully, I didn't butcher the name too much. So, I can say it's been 84 years, but I finally managed. <laughs> I recommend everything, every, every, everything seems to take a lot with us, so well, be patient. Yeah. <laughs> I recommend everyone to actually read the book, but just in case you might need a push in that direction, maybe me and Diana highlighting some ideas from it will do the trick. Also, I want to preface this with the disclaimer that I will quote extensively from the book. I have to first plug the writing style in itself. Mukherjee has a way of making a vast and complicated subject somewhat easy to follow and also has the ability of making this subject personal. He makes you care. So don't be afraid of the subject matter. Yeah, especially because um, we all know from experience that discussions about nature versus nurture tend to be a bit uh, tricky, uh, since uh, it's highly unlikely that anyone entering this discussion uh, would, even if they don't have an agenda of their own, uh, they still have some deeply personal values and beliefs that shape the lens through which you choose to select and interpret data. Um, and it's, uh, we believe, a great way to identify uh, potentially shitty people because they will jump at the opportunity to rationalize what they perceive as uh, sort of their elevated status in the world relative to other groups. Indeed, indeed, that is that is generally true, but um, it is not the case with this book. Mm -hmm. So moving on, one of the good uh, ones, one of the good guys. Well, exactly. So the book has a, a prologue, six main parts, and an epilogue. But I think more importantly, the book has three main themes, and uh, the first one is a historical theme where we get to learn about the most. Um, important moments in the discoveries that have to do with genetics. Uh, in this part, we learn about the great minds that really advanced this field, but also we learn about <clears throat> some of the downfalls brought by the minds that were not so great and had big ambitions and a general dislike of humanity. You know, here be eugenics. But since we already covered this in previous podcasts, I think it is safe to move on. Well, I mean, you know, I'm not going to break your flow here, but we're we're probably going to discuss uh, why these, uh, you know, bad actors, as you said, with a general dislike for humanity, uh, keep uh, appearing again and again throughout history and using science or whatever they can uh, lay their hands on to to sort of cudgel uh, and as a cudgel and beat others down. So, but do go on. <laughs> Well, you know, just, you know, just to be cute, I could say that the reason they keep popping up, it's, you know, have to do with genetics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah probably. Mo <laughs> so moving on, the second theme of the book is the scientific theme. This part might be the least interesting for the people who are not really into the actual research, 
but I think Mukherjee did a fairly good job of presenting facts without dumbing them down, but also without insisting too much on the technical details. And the third theme, which I might say is a philosophical one, about the ethical dilemmas brought forth by the field of genetics so far and the possibilities of what might be. So starting with the first part of the book, I would say is very much worth reading. I personally mm -hmm. loved le learning about all these different people of science. Well, some of them were more philosophers than scientists, since the scientific method was still a long way away. But yeah, well, they were scientists, uh, wannabe, scientist wannabes. <laughs> um, well, you have to start somewhere. But, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but well, before any real science even existed, people asked themselves things like, why do, I, do we look like our parents? And also, why don't we look exactly like our parents? Mm -hmm. And um, I really loved the story of Mendel, who didn't manage to pass the biology exams of his time because he kept asking questions that were deemed silly, such as, why do elephants give birth to elephants? Why do they never give birth to a mouse or a horse, you know? <laughs> well, you know, he should have asked the, the really good questions that would have uh, granted him uh, probably a leading position at the time, like uh, how come lords always uh, give birth to lords, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> As we know, that was the right sort of question to ask. To totally. Yeah, but uh, wasn't this uh, like also about the time when the idea of spontaneous generation was also still around? Uh, uh, the, the idea that sort of living organisms could arise from inanimate matter rather than as a result of um, common ancestors and that uh, the diversity that you would see in the, in the world uh, resulted from different organisms then becoming more complex in their attempt to achieve perfection, which of course, you know, at the end of this uh, pro pro progress towards perfection, there was the human race, naturally. <laughs> um, well, uh, Mukherjee has a really nice phrase about uh, Mendel enrolling in classes uh, to the University of Vienna. Mm. Uh, to pursue his degree in natural sciences. And um, the phrase goes like this. It was here that Mendel's problems with biology and biology's problems with Mendel would begin. Uh, so the main thing in biology at the time was taxonomy, meaning mm. uh, classifying living beings into distinct categories, like they have nothing to do with one another. But uh, okay. there was... Uh, no particular logic to these categories. So at the time of Mendel going to university, they were aware of the sperm and an egg um, mm -hmm. and uh, somewhat reluctantly, they, they, they gave up on the idea of the ready-made human existing as a homunculus in the sperm. Mm -hmm. And um, they they would they came up with this uh, idea, this principle of vis essentialis corporis, like oh, if know, it's Latin, you know, it's good. Yeah, yes, it's a sort sort of like magic stuff in a being. So mm -hmm. it, it was 
a, a somewhat sciencey way to say some shit happens and we don't really know what it is. So and and, <clears throat> and wasn't it also a sort of major effort to make sure that however you contort yourself to describe uh, sort of how life uh, comes into being, you make sure that you attribute as little um, uh, to women as possible in the process. Of, of, of course. Like and, all, um, all the information is within the sperm. Uh, the major contribution is done by the guy and everything. The, yeah, the woman uh, no, is basically were, just they, a vessel. Yeah, the, as, it, as I said, they were a little bit past that because they had uh, literally seen the uh, sperm and the egg. And by mm -hmm. this time, they, they knew you have to combine the two. Uh, and <laughs> somehow. <laughs> somehow. And, uh, and uh, the, the, the time when Mendel was doing his research was actually around the same time that Darwin was putting together his theory of evolution. Um, and even though their uh, respective works were read at least one time at the same conference, nobody saw the link between them. Not even Darwin, who was actually looking for an explanation for heredity, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they were, they were a little bit past this idea of, you know, inanimate objects becoming living things uh, and just the sperm does all the job. Uh, they were still in the God has something to do with it anyway. <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay, okay, so to get back to, to get back on track, uh, what we notice uh, in the historical part of the book um, is that uh, the desire to understand heredity was just as strong as the desire to manipulate heredity since the very beginning of the idea. The actual gene wasn't even a concept now to, to people. Uh, yet great thinkers of the time, like Plato and Aristotle and the like, were already sort of proposing models of heredity, but also inserting, as you do, your own belief uh, in the model, you know, the, mm -hmm. their own belief uh, beliefs in the models. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but science that... has absolutely no bias whatsoever. Well, scientists. Well, at, at, at least uh, Plato and Aristotle were not presenting themselves, themselves Lola, <laughs> as they, scientists. They, they were opinion <laughs> writers, right? That's the loophole. They were opinion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there was no fact-checking. <laughs> so uh, the thing that Mukherjee tries to convey throughout the book is that you cannot have heredity in the abstract. The moment mm. one person started talking about it, it immediately became concrete something that could bring good things for some people and bad things for others. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you said that uh, the model I uh, mentioned earlier was uh, sort of outdated by that time, but uh, I think the general concept of uh, this hierarchical chain of existence uh, that Lamarck envisioned, uh, it's uh, it's uh, the sort of uh, pro projection of an individual's belief uh, beliefs onto the topic uh, that you said yourself. Uh, and it's not just like a person doing this, you know, one bad actor. Uh, these are uh, the early days of uh, colonialism. So all of a sudden, it's uh, not just something that, oh, well, it just happens, but it's also very self-serving because you have uh, uh, people in power who... Uh, might listen to these guys and go, oh, oh, uh, so what, what, what exactly are you saying? 
maybe we could use this and uh, uh, in exchange perhaps uh, you know uh, your your voices and your books uh, might be um, you know read by important people and you can get a sort of elevated status of course and uh, what makes of course what makes all of this uh, so annoying is that uh, when people today point uh, these sort of happenings, these sort of things out, uh, oftentimes the response is, oh, well, just, uh, you know, projecting your obsession with uh, colonialism and imperialism and whatnot onto uh, these things which are somehow, uh, you know, very separate from anything that has to do with politics and yeah, but uh-huh. you know, actually, there's hardly a hardly a better example of people projecting their political or philosophical beliefs or you know prejudices uh, onto everything from arts to science than these uh, influential men in the 18th and 19th century, uh, and all of it done in order to justify why they should be in charge of everything. So, yeah, of course. I mean. It seems obvious to me, but I'm sure some people will disagree. Mm, well, they, <laughs> uh, they, they, yeah. they tend to, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, even though we already talked enough about eugenics um, of era's past in other episodes, I have to mm-hmm. mention a very impo- important point Mukherjee makes about this desire to manipulate heredity in search of uh, some sort of perfect or perfected human being. And the book brings up different examples of genes that while on one hand uh, result in undesirable traits in a given context, uh, sometimes they also predispose us to desirable traits in another context. So this Mm -hmm. idea of selecting for a specific set of traits is a lot more complicated than a simple pick and mix, because there is always likely to be a trade-off involved in the choices that you are making, you know? Can you can you give an example for this sort of thing? Yeah, I, I can give one that is, you know, uh, relatively uncontroversial because it's not about, you know, intelligence, beauty and uh, the like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> for example, uh, the high prevalence of the mutated cystic fibrosis gene in mm-hmm. European population uh, has puzzled uh, geneticists for decades because um, if cystic fibrosis is such a little disease, you know, they people with cystic fibrosis, uh, especially before uh, any sort of uh, real medicine, they were dying really fast. So um, why was the gene not cut out of the evolutionary selection? Mm-hmm. And recent stat- studies posit uh, the theory that the mutant, uh, mutant cystic fibrosis gene uh, provided a selective advantage during cholera infections. And Mm -hmm. cholera in humans uh, causes severe diarrhea. Nice topic. Mm -hmm. Uh, That leads to, you know, (laughs) acute loss of salt and water, and that leads to dehydration, and in the end it leads to death. And Mm -hmm. um, the humans with just one copy of the mutated gene have a slightly diminished capacity to lose salt and water through their membranes, and thus are relatively protected from the most devastating complication of the cholera. So mm-hmm. uh, a, a mutation in a gene can have a dual effect. Uh, it can be potentially beneficial if you only have one copy, and it is little when you have two copies, you know? So mm-hmm. humans with one copy of the mutant uh, gene 
have survived uh, cholera epidemics in Europe when uh, the people who managed to you know get the unlucky combination and um, have two uh, two of the copies from the mother and the father well uh, they died but mm-hmm. the selective advantage was strong enough to maintain the mutant gene in the population and also uh, for instance now that maybe in uh, certain places uh, cholera isn't that much of a recurring problem uh, that gene has yet again become some somewhat of a nu- nuisance perhaps yeah, exactly yes yes mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. and the, and that is why this idea uh, mukerji says in the book that this idea of disease uh, you cannot have a discussion about disease without context. Nothing is mm-hmm. necessarily, unless it's one of those things that you cannot, you, you know, you 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 um, are born and you instantly die. <laughs> uh, yeah. Other than that, other than that, uh, um, a lot of the things that we talk about as disease uh, has to do with context. Change the context, the medium, uh, the society, the sensory, and maybe that is not any longer a disease. You know. Uh, it's, uh, he he talks quite a lot about this, and uh, it it is interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, now to you know to to set up the discussion around the ethical dilemmas involved um, involved with genetics and mm-hmm. thus with the book, um, it might be of interest to know what gene therapy is nowadays. And uh, gene therapy encompasses germline gene therapy and somatic gene therapy. And the somatic gene therapy means loosely that you introduce a gene into a cell, often a stem cell, into the human body, and that cell divides, replicates, and contains the altered genetic information. And that changes its its function and starts doing a different function. So you managed to uh, modify what that gene was doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is different from germline, uh, germline gene therapy, in which the intention is to change the genetic information in a cell that is capable of producing sperm and eggs. Uh, so once it does produce a sperm or an egg, it will transmit the genetic change to the next generation in perpetuity. So in this way, you not only change a, what a gene does, but you change forever the human species. Mm, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, at, at the moment, uh, uh, germline gene therapy uh, is uh, not uh, allowed uh, in uh, Europe, United States, but. Uh, Let's just say that uh, China said, uh, well, nobody's saying no to us and they're genuinely mm-hmm. trying. So, you know. Was uh, it uh, that uh, thing about, uh, I think it was in 2019 or 2018, where they uh, experimented with a gene that would, uh, um, something to do with HIV or AIDS? Honestly, I don't remember what they said in the book that they were trying to do. I don't even think that they were necessarily trying to do something other than to prove that they can do it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, the therapy from which uh, stem all the interesting questions, biological and ethical questions, is the germline one, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know. So Mukherjee points out that once the gene was discovered and understood and the human genome was somewhat sequenced, uh, 
the science of um, genetics could, you know, this is a quote, the science of genetics could roam freely to explore aspects of human biology that had hitherto seemed impenetrable to it. Genetics had crossed over uh, from the strand of pathology to the strand of normalcy. The new science would be used to understand history, language, memory, culture, sexuality, identity, and race. It would, in its most ambitious fantasies, try to become the science of normalcy, of health, of identity, of destiny. And the attempt to confront human normalcy through genes would also force the science of genetics to confront some of the most complex scientific and moral conundrums in its history. So mm. that's very ambitious, but well, true. Yeah, when I when I hear the word normalcy, I, I tend to bristle. <laughs> yeah, but you, you know, it, it is uh, one aspect in which a lot of people are using genetics for. Mm -hmm. So one of the ideas that Mukherjee presents from the genetic perspective um, is the idea of human races. Uh, you know, easy subject. <laughs> no, and, uh, piece of cake. And how useful or, you know, not useful uh, this idea is. Um, mm. And the fact that um, the most often used uh, definition of race is of uh, self-identifying, um, mm -hmm. you know, as being a, a certain race. Mm -hmm. One of the fact that uh, one of the facts that Mukherjee points out is that um, our increasingly shrill debates on race should begin with the recognition that the actual range of human genomic variation is strikingly low. I mean, lower uh, than let's say in the chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> he points out that even for a somewhat young species like us. Some differences do exist, though. Uh, what he sees as the problem with racial discrimination is not the inference of a person's race from their genetic characteristic. It is quite the opposite. It is the inference of a person's characteristics from their race. So mm -hmm. the question is not, can you, given an individual's skin color, hair texture, language, infer something about their ancestries, their origin? Because of course you can. But the vastly more controversial question is the converse. Given a racial identity, African, Asian, say, can you infer anything about an individual's characteristics? Not just the skin or hair color, but you know, more complex features uh, like their intelligence, habits, personality, aptitudes. So genes can certainly tell us about race, but can race tell us about genes? I think it's... Uh, mm. <clears throat> The, the point. In order to answer this question, the book points out something very well demonstrated and quite interesting. And that is that for the most part, the genetic diversity within any racial group dominates the diversity between racial groups, not marginally by, by an enormous amount. So uh, this degree of intraracial variability makes race a poor surrogate for nearly any feature. For race and genetics, the genome is a strikingly one-way street. You can use genome to predict where X or Y came from, but knowing where X and Y came from, you can predict very little about a person's genome. 
The evolutionary mm. explanation uh, is simple. There is a, a, a great genetic variation in populations, even in small ones. This individual variation has accumulated over long periods uh, because most genetic variation antedate the separation uh, into continents and perhaps even the origin of the species. Uh, so less than half a million years ago. There has therefore been too little time for accumulation of substantial divergence. The point being that uh, we are, you know, a lot more alike than we are different. At this point, uh, I have to ask, like, if the term of race wouldn't be a very important tool rhetorically and politically, uh, would we still be dancing around the idea uh, because, you know, we don't have long-winded discussions about past notions like fumes and humors and animus, uh, you know, notions that we, well, not we, <laughs> our ancestors at one point used uh, to talk about what they knew on the topic. But, you know, as time went on, it it was uh, sort of convened that, well, it's it's not useful anymore to, to use these terms. We have to figure out some new terms that would better describe what we are observing. And besides that, race is already a very loaded term. So, I don't know, it just seems like we're trying to argue with flat earthers, only it's about human beings, you know? And I, I, I guess, Maybe one of the reasons why we we still have all these very nuanced discussions about the term is because, you know, unlike flat earthers, uh, people who, who cling on to this notion of race as it was defined in the 18th and 19th century uh, are sometimes people in maybe, you know, more elevated positions that have uh, a vested interest, so to speak, in in keeping this term alive? What do you think? Well, uh, of course, there is that. But mm -hmm. um, as Mukherjee points out, a lot of the idea of race also stems from a person, uh, a person identifying uh, him or herself. Mm. And yes. uh, obviously, uh, we have, we put great importance upon this description of who I am. And uh, somehow race really comes into who I am and it would be really, really difficult to, to tell somebody, stop thinking of yourself as uh, white or black or Asian or African-American mm. or whatever. Just think of yourself as this group from here to there geographically, because these are the people which we, uh, with which you have, you know, the most in common. And if we do, I don't know, some sort of research on your genes or we try to come up with some medication or something, uh, we are going to lump you together with these people because uh, it, you will, you know, respond most likely like them to whatever it will not resonate with yeah. people yeah so, also it reminds me a bit about the discussion uh, i think it was in feminist circles about whether or not we should emphasize sort of the differences in the life experiences of women versus men but we also want people to stop thinking so much in terms of their gender and we'd like like a post gender world where you, you you are not constrained by all these things. But on the other hand, the argument is yes, but when you're trying to advocate for certain policies that would improve women's lives, 
it's uh, uh, not very useful and pragmatic to sort of contradict yourself by saying, well, but a, a large component of what it means to be a woman is also uh, social constraints. And so, you know, you sort of uh, push and pull at the same time and you might not end up going, <laughs> progressing in, in, in any direction. So, yeah, yeah. No, it's... Uh... And, uh, yeah. There are some some ways that we uh, we identify ourselves that maybe it's not necessarily from a scientific point of view the most important, but um, you cannot you cannot move past it. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. just a, just as with men and women, you also you need the difference also from you know if you do any sort of science experiments, you know because that also matters and you also have all these social implications so that that's also a thing so mm-hmm. the the point being that all these things are still here to to stay so it's important to to discuss them mm-hmm. okay so moving on <laughs> to to the rest of the discussion Around this time, uh, Mukherjee mentions in the book Charles Murray and mm. uh, his book The Bell Curve and uh, more interestingly than Murray and his book, he mentions the much debated idea of general intelligence and its genetic origins and whether intelligence is unequally segregated among races. And Mukherjee, while discussing the statements from the bell curve, is trying to answer three questions and uh, I will um, underline them. First question, is the IQ test a great surrogate for intelligence? And Mukherjee says, um, if it's about certain aspects of performance, sure, it predicts certain aspects of performance in the world, but it is also a very poor predictor of other aspects of performance, apparently even aspects of academic performance. And in some cases, it correlates highly with how you will perform in the world, and in other cases, it does not. His point is that he cannot see an independent a variable, a gold standard variable that would help us really know if what we're measuring really is what we think we're measuring. When when we use the word intelligence, we use a very powerful word, a word that comes with a lot of cultural and historical baggage attached to it. It is one thing to say someone performs poorly on certain tests and quite another to say that uh, one person has a low intelligence level. You're blowing my mind here. You mean to say that uh, (laughs) Galton's method of just uh, jotting down in his notebook whether a woman he sees uh, he would kill, fuck, marry, kill (laughs) is not a good way to measure, for instance, beauty or, you know, um, him giving tests, random tests to random people of different classes and his backgrounds is not a good measure of, uh, you know, who's actually smart. We can safely <laughs> say Galton was not the best scientist, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, joking aside, um, the point you, you well, uh, the point Mukherjee made is, is, is very important, I think, and it should be highlighted more because there are many uh, examples, I think uh, all of us can, can conjure up uh, of, that demonstrate how squishy terms like intelligence can be. I mean, for one thing, we know how 
the idea of intelligence often overlaps in people's heads with the idea of having an elevated status. So for instance, many will assume that rich people uh, or you know people who are generally successful, um, they must also be intelligent, even if they might concede that, well, okay, maybe maybe they're not smart in, in an academic way way but you know they are savvy they are cunning they are visionaries they uh, think on their feet um so you know people not only concede that something like street smarts is different in nature from academic performance but often they also value one over the other uh on a case by case scenario so again if the person with the street smarts is also successful their type of intelligence is valued over that of the university professor, right? But if you don't make it, which is usually defined in financial terms, then nobody cares about your astuteness and, you know, you do well to shut up and listen to what smarter people have to say. Uh, And uh, we also know that in order to be considered an intelligent or a wise person in, say, medieval Europe involved a different set of skills than, say, in China around the same time. Uh, There are also class differences we can apply to this label. A wise village elder has a particular set of skills that earns earns him the label of intelligence, whereas a prince would uh, probably present a different set of skills to earn the same uh, title, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we look for um, is definitely important, and um, it's uh, it's one of the one of the points that uh, when we look for performances in particular tests, the more we define the test as a surrogate for whatever trait we might be trying to measure, chances are we're going to find a genetic determ- we're going to find genetic determinants of that. Uh, as an example, if we decide that beauty is having blue eyes, then sure, we can say that beauty is genetic. Or in sports, if we say being a great athlete means running a certain distance in a certain amount of time, we will find genetic determinants for that. Mm-hmm. As we enter a, you know, a clearly toxic arena, uh, we have to be very careful what we are measuring and uh, how um, come we have arrived to certain definitions. And uh, as the world advanced and uh, we all became more specialized, this idea of general sportsman means less uh, today, uh, just as this idea of multidisciplinary personalities uh, and intelligence in all things means a lot less and it, uh, uh, it is a lot less likely today than it used to be. And. Uh, It is important to remember that we have arrived at this cultural idea of intelligence by way of history, uh, with all of the different biases from different eras about what is important and what not, as you said, and Mm -hmm. uh, what we think takes brains and uh, what we think it does not. And those historical and cultural circumstances that gave us the definition are worth questioning. Of it course. just uh, popped into my mind that uh, it's uh, so fascinating oftentimes uh, to see arenas that we usually associate with certain things like uh, physical ap- uh, abilities, you know, speed, mm-hmm. endurance, stamina, uh, strength. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 
And even in those fields, you have certain athletes that reach a certain level of performance and are admired because they don't have the same physical level and abilities like most of their other peers. Uh, and yet they make it in the game because uh, they play off their, their whatever it is that they do possess as a skill set. Uh, so it's it's also interesting because even if in theory you might not have the necessary skills or uh, the level of skills that would uh, make you perform, sometimes, you know, this is the beauty of sort of human adaptability, you can find ways to use what you do have and, and uh, sort of uh, gain a competitive ad- advantage. Yeah, or, you know, uh, probably uh, an easier and simpler explanation is that um, the skill set for a particular sport or whatever um, activity we're going to do um, is a lot more complex than we think in the first place. Yeah, so, yeah, so absolutely. It, so it's not so surprising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just that uh, we we sort of honed in or like on like one or two things uh, because basketball comes to mind because I have recently watched the documentary on Netflix about Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he was considered not as tall, um, like somehow he, that he should be a little bit taller in order to be sure that he will really make it in the game. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, you know, um, what what uh, ended up defining him as and making him one of, one of these uh, great athletes uh, um, of of all times and transcending his sport was not necessarily that he was uh, whatever he ate all and uh, <laughs> um, how he put the, the the ball in the basket but what what resonated with a lot of people um, was his drive, his desire to win. And uh, if I can just mix a lot of things that have nothing to do with one another, uh, you know I have greyhounds. Uh, and uh, um, greyhounds are, are, are dogs that are bred for running, in, in, you know, mm-hmm. for them to just want to run without anybody telling them to run. And mm-hmm. uh, this, uh, this ability, uh, in the dogs at least, I don't, I don't know if it's in humans also, but in the dogs it's called gameness. You know, how, how, how willing to play the game they are. And most definitely Jordan's gameness was, you know, the, <laughs> the, the most amazing thing about him. Uh, so surely there are a lot of um, things involved when you become particularly good and recognized, because it's also something uh, to, to, to somehow manage to match at the same time your skills, whatever those might be, uh, in a certain activity and to also have the environment that will acknowledge uh, your ability in that environment because, you know, what good does it do a certain painter that now his paintings are being sold with millions of dollars if at the time of their life they were poor as fuck and nobody bought a painting mm-hmm. you know <laughs> so, yeah. so uh it's it's about what skills you have what what skills we think are worthy and uh, what we are interested at the time mm-hmm. yeah. sort of um 
Okay, so... Um, so, again, Galton's way was not the right way. No. <laughs> oh, damn. It was so, so easy, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, what Mukherjee points out is that the concept of IQ is a powerfully self-reinforcing one. It measures a quality imbued with enormous meaning and value whose job is to propagate itself. The circle of its logic is perfectly closed and impenetrable, yet the actual configuration of the test is relatively arbitrary. Also, the tricky thing about the notion of G is that it pretends to be a biological quality that is measurable and is heritable, while it is actually strongly determined by cultural priorities. It is, to simplify it somewhat, the most dangerous things of all, Mukherjee says, a meme masquerading as a gene. Uh, does uh, this have anything to do with uh, the fact that apparently uh, people who are given an IQ test uh, tend to perform better a second time around if they receive training for taking that particular kind of test. Well, that is one aspect of it, yes. Uh, but what Mukherjee was mostly trying to do here is to joke about the fact that uh, we have... Uh, um, we have actually more like somebody's idea, a meme, mm -hmm. that a lot of people are trying to insist it's not about what they believe, but it is a genetical fact, a gene, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this was mostly what he was So instead of a definition, to. it's like, no, 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 no. This is something very clearly quantifiable. Yeah. If, um, you know, if the history of medical genetics uh, teaches us one lesson, it is to be wary of precisely such slips between biology and culture. Humans, we now know, are largely similar in genetic terms, but with enough variation within us to represent true diversity. Or perhaps more accurately, we are culturally or biologically inclined to magnify variations, even if they are minor in the larger scheme of the genome. And uh, tests that are explicitly designed to capture variances in abilities will likely capture variances in abilities. <laughs> and this <laughs> variation may well track along racial lines. But to call the score in such a test intelligence, especially when the score is uniquely sensitive to the configuration of the test, is, you know, to insult the very quality it sets out to measure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the second question Mukherjee um, uh, highlights is um, whether testing on the IQ test is heritable uh, and or inheritable. Heritable means if there is a powerful genetic component to it and inheritable is about how likely is that that trait marches through generations in an intact form. So we measure heritability through twin studies. Um, <clears throat> it seems that the results in IQ tests are highly heritable. Twins share a high co concordance. And looking at studies of fraternal versus identical twins, we can extrapolate that multiple genes interaction are involved. Uh, so far, no single gene seems to be involved by itself. So the IQ seems to be one of the many human features that is heritable, but it is not easily inheritable. 
But even if you know that a trait is highly heritable, that does not mean you know for sure that that trait is not also at the same time stunted by external stimuli. For example, height is definitely heritable. But if we go to a certain place and we see people being a certain average height, we don't know just by looking if they cannot be taller, if we change their food or some other aspect of their environment, you know? Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I have an example for this. <laughs> go, I actually go know ahead, stuff. Go, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, apparently in, the, in, in Meiji era Japan, uh, there were some important shifts uh, in the diet. So for instance, um, well, you know, the Japanese were not wholly vegetarian. Uh, they they did eat fish and they also uh, ate uh, like small gains like rabbits and stuff like that. But they weren't big uh, red meat eaters, for instance. And uh, following the 19th century, there was a significant increase in the consumption of uh, meat and especially red meat. And this led to a growth spurt in the average height of the population within a few generations. And uh, what I found out is that it's not just a one-way street. Um, there was a write-up in the New Yorker following a discussion with a professor from uh, the University of Munich, John Komlosch, uh, about varying heights in the U.S. throughout periods of its history. And... Um, the professor says that around the time of the Civil War, Americans' heights predictably decreased. Union soldiers dropped from 68 to 67 inches in the mid-1800s, and similar patterns held for uh, West Point cadets, uh, Amherst students, and free blacks in Maryland and Virginia. By the end of the 19th century, however, the country seemed to uh, set to regain its eminence. The economy was expanding at a dramatic rate and public hygiene campaigns were sweeping the cities clean at last. For the first time in American history, urbanites began to outgrow farmer, farmers. Uh, finally, another uh, important uh, point uh, made on the topic was this. Uh, but though climate still shapes uh, mass oxen and giraffes, uh, and a willowy Inuit is hard to find, its effects on industrialized people has almost disappeared. Swedes ought to be short and stocky, yet they've had a good clothing and shelter for so long that they're some of the tallest people in the world. Mexicans ought to be tall and slender, yet they're so often stunted by poor diet and diseases that we assume they were born to be small. Yeah, that, those are great examples and... Mm -hmm. Very, I, I think, very easy to, to understand and to, to see. About the third question that Mukherjee asks on this topic um, is uh, racial genetics. To what extent does race have anything to do with IQ? And uh, things that are heritable but are not inheritable tend not to run in races, the way in which we commonly construct them. The Victorian idea of race does not uh, really make all that much sense. It seems that uh, it is a lot more useful to construct racist or anyway uh, to group people in clusters according to geographic distribution more mm -hmm. than the color of their skin. So Mukherjee po Mukherjee's point in the book is that we can talk about IQ 
as long as we understand that there are many pieces that make up the concept and that there are many things to take into consideration when we see IQ test results. Things like how circular is the definition of intelligence, what IQ tests actually measure, how much does it rely on a particular uh, form of testing, how much is the environment, um, is the reason or the motivation in someone taking this test important because apparently it is with different motivations mm -hmm. people perform in different ways on the same test is the same um, you know is the self-identification of race a real thing and uh, none of these questions have as of yet definitive answers so not only is it not a good idea to have a very black and white conclusion yes ah. pun intended <laughs> <laughs> about this test but it's even worse to then even go one step further and claim to want to make public social policies based on these tests as uh, you know uh, murray might suggest yeah uh, yeah he's He's trash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I genuinely think that Mukherjee's approach to this subject is very nuanced and balanced. And mm -hmm. I think um, he, he, he puts some really interesting questions forth. And um, mm. anybody who wouldn't actually try to answer his questions, but just insist that, you know, facts are facts and they don't care about your feelings or some shit. And what does the science say? What does the science say? And if it doesn't say what they want to, then, well, it's because everyone is a leftist, even in the scientific field or, or SJW or whatever the, 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 the slur of the day is. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the the science is just uh, you know trying to uh, respond cultural to, Marxist. <laughs> yeah, to the to the, to the snowflakes agenda or something. Yeah. 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 No. Um. I, I. I. And also, I heard Mukherjee also in other interviews talk about this. Uh, this. This topic, and mm -hmm. um, I. It. He really struck me as uh, being very. Um, you know. Uh, a very balanced guy and also mm -hmm. like he he was asked about um, being somehow unfair uh, unfair to to murray and um, this was in an interview and uh, to my delight uh, his answer was that he actually spoke uh, at length to, to murray and and they emailed back and forth and mm -hmm. he actually told his opinions to murray and well murray didn't agree but they genuinely have a con had a conversation about this uh, this thing mm -hmm. so um his like his couple of pages on this book um did not come from some sort of resentment toward Murray mm -hmm. or his book. He just have a different approach and a different uh, way of incorporating all the data, not just some studies. Yeah, and also I guess if you're uh, like uh, Mukherjee, who seems to, you know, he, I mean, he's uh, he knows his shit, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have the confidence to just confront whomever uh, because you know your facts, you know your arguments, you can present them clearly and precisely. Probably you can also counter whatever the other person has uh, will throw at you. And at the end of the day, uh, we all know that there are bad faith actors who don't uh, 
um, register any of your arguments either way because their purpose is to just win the debate or to to uh, keep alive uh, in the public sphere a certain discourse however corrosive it might be uh, and and you know at the end of the day, if if uh, the person does not really wish to engage in an actual discussion, then you know you've tried and you know next time uh, there's no point in talking to them directly because they're not going to actually discuss anything. So you know you're just going to stick to your guns. Yeah, I mean what I think makes uh, Mukherjee um, particularly. Uh, interesting uh, uh, person is that you know uh, on one hand he has the scientific credentials like he genuinely mm-hmm. knows the science when he talks about this um he he also have you know um cultural recognition i mean people see him as a uh, a guy who succeeded in his field but also as you know uh, a best selling author uh, so he also has the money uh, mm-hmm. People don't 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 see him as somebody who's sort of trying to I don't know now establish himself in this discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's a man also, but, the, but <laughs> it helps. But it, it helps, but at the same time he he's of you know Indian origins and mm-hmm. he comes from a family with a history of mental illness, uh, mm-hmm. a, a, a heritable mental illness, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. so. He he also definitely understands um, the other side. When you come from a family with uh, a history of mental illness, in this case, it doesn't matter if you're from India or America or any European country, you will be looked upon with, you know, a certain mm-hmm. uh, level of distrust because it doesn't matter that we know that Either you have that disease or it skipped you, you know, it skipped a generation. Mm-hmm. But somehow the whole family is regarded as a little kind of yeah. weird. Yeah, it, there, there's a stigma. Yeah, there, there definitely is. So uh, his whole book, actually, I, you know, I haven't said it in the beginning, but his whole book is written from this perspective. He starts with his own uh, family mm-hmm. history of mental illness and uh, he tracks all of this discussion with the story of his family and himself and the fact that when he finally met uh, somebody he knew he wanted to marry he knew he he had to have this discussion look this is my family mm-hmm. if we're going to get married if we're going to have children this is the possibility that our children will have this disease uh, so uh, he really uh, really understands the power of this topic and the importance of these discussions, I think. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, this uh, could conclude our first part, right? Yeah, yeah, this will be a two-parter. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Okay. Bye.